The scripture accompanying today's message is Revelation 1, 12 through 20. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs on his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and with his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So it was uh, July 22nd, 2004, when the chairman of the 9-11 Commission came to present his report on the lawn of the White House. Thomas Keene's team had been tasked with identifying what the causes were and the lessons from the terrorist attacks from 2001. Well, after 20 months of investigation, they admitted that America simply was not prepared for that particular kind of attack. And while there was plenty of blame to go around for everybody, the most memorable quote came at the outset when Keene said this, as we detail in our report, this was a failure of policy, management, capability, and above all, a failure of imagination. Well, that phrase has kind of entered our cultural lexicon, has it not, to describe any situation where something should have been predictable, uh, that with the benefit of hindsight, this, this undesirable end could ultimately have been avoidable. Keene would go on to say, we do not believe leaders understood the gravity of the threat. Now, I find that little phrase interesting because there's a sense in which the Bible invites us in to, to that same kind of moment. Throughout the pages of Scripture, there's an encouragement for God's people to understand the gravity of what they know. You see, we have this strange capability as human beings to to both know something, to have knowledge of something, while at the same time we have these other versions of knowing that invade and keep us from knowing what we clearly see to be true. For instance, think about belief in God. If Romans 1, 18 and following are to be believed, God's existence isn't really anything that's really arguable, at least in Paul's mind. Why? Because he says God's existence is, quote, plain to them. He goes on to say that if you simply survey the created order of things, you will see God's invisible attributes and you will know that they are clearly seen. So the question comes then, well, how do you account then for the existence of atheists? And, of course, the answer is in verse 18 of Romans 1 where he says that men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, men know it, but in some way that they're actively holding that information down 
So it doesn't so much rise up into the level of their consciousness and they decide that they can't be in control of their own lives. Which I recognize is not a very flattering response to an atheist who simply believes that he just wants more proof of God's existence. But I think it helps to lay down what the terms of the Bible are when it comes to God's existence. But I don't want to pick too much on atheists because I do think that Christians ourselves can sort of function like functional atheists. (laughs) We walk around worrying with anxiety and fears barely acknowledging God's existence until the chips are down. I mean, honestly, it could be true that that even Christians who fail to live up to what God has called us to be, we suffer our own crisis of imagination, don't we? Of course, then along comes a global pandemic. I mean, for over a year now, we have endured sickness and death, barraged by it every single night on the news. You know, we have been frazzled by as contentious an election as I can remember having in my lifetime. Uh, we've endured this unending tension that you could cut with a knife, not so much between black people and white people, but between the ways in which African Americans ap- apprehend the world and the way in which the white folks understand it. So enter our passage here this morning in the book of Revelation, which, which I would submit to you is targeting two different audiences On the one hand, John is writing to a group of people for whom Christianity uh, has stopped working. In other words, they're suffering. And if they're suffering, why did they sign up for this Jesus anyway, if my life isn't getting much better afterwards? The other group he's writing to is a group of people for whom Christianity has stopped being interesting. We believe Revelation to have happened some 40, at least 40 years after Jesus' death. But now for some believers, it's like, It's like Christianity is just kind of quaint. Something I used to be into back when I was in college. But now, I mean, honestly, did we really put all that much emphasis into it back in the day? And, of course, the Apostle John knows all of this. Here he is on this Mediterranean island of Patmos, having followed Jesus all of his life. And suddenly he gets this vision. And for 22 chapters, he unpacks these, these fantastical visions that come to him that honestly are some of the most amazing in the whole Bible. But the crazy visions you're going to find are actually part of the point. And here's the reason why. Because the book of Revelation is not necessarily a theology book. And don't get me wrong, there's all kinds of dramatic theological truths located in its pages. But I don't think that's its primary aim. Rather, the aim of Revelation is your imagination. The bizarre, extraordinary images are trying to capture your imagination. And experience transformation on the other side. A couple of my favorite commentators, Michael Wilcox says, when his children have had enough of reciting systematic theology, God gives them a gorgeous picture book to look at, which is in a different way just as educational. Richard Balkum says this, the world seen from this transcendent perspective is a new kind of symbolic world into which John's readers are taken as his artistry creates it for them. But listen to this. But really, it's not another world. It's John's reader's concrete day-to-day world, only seen in heavenly perspective. That's it. (laughs) What he's saying is, is John's not describing another world far away. He's describing this world, our world. But it's just the way that God sees it. It's his view of it all. And, of course, it's nothing short of amazing. Okay, so here's the question. What does that have to do with Easter? (laughs) Well, simply this. Because John sees at the center of all of this activity the resurrected Christ. And what we're going to find this morning is that this is the vision that's captured John's imagination. And he wants it to capture ours as well. 
He wants us not to suffer from our own failure of imagination. So in verses 12 through 20, he gives us at least two particular aspects of Christ that we need to see that are appeals to our imagination. First of all, we need to see the vision. And second of all, we need to see the victory. Look at that first point there. First of all, the vision. When John sees, when he turns to see who's talking to him, is so breathtaking for him. But you, we have to be taught a little bit of how to see what he sees. Because John is not doing what we would call representational drawing. Uh, it's far more impressionistic, uh, abstract by its nature. Uh, I, I was on a short-term missions trip to New York City a number of years ago. And a student and I decided that we would go tour the Museum of Modern Art. And after walking through these crazy exhibits through this museum, we finally turned a corner and came across a very large white rectangle that was posted up on the wall. And I said, okay, that's it. This is ridiculous. It's a white box. What could this possibly be? Well, our tour guide kind of giggled to herself a little bit and she explained, she said that the artist had actually discovered a new kind of paint that contained some kind of crystals in it. Goes, she goes, if you'll sit here and stare at it from, from just this angle, you'll actually see it sparkle like you couldn't before. And sure enough, it did. In other words, it wasn't just the art that we needed to look at. We needed to know how to look at it. And once we did, it took on new power. Okay, the same is true for the book of Revelation as you're reading through it. Because you can't draw what John describes. Although I've seen some people try. I've seen pictures of Jesus with his long sword coming out of his mouth. That's not the point. But what John sees, he wants to impact and move our imagination. So what does he see? Well, first thing he sees is he sees seven golden lampstands. Now, it's very nice when the Bible, especially Revelation, tells you right out what the symbols stand for. And in verse 20, Jesus explains that those lampstands are the churches that were listed in verse 11. And by the way, there are seven of those churches listed, which is a big deal. Because in the Jewish mind, seven was a whole number. And because it was a whole number, it means that he's not just referring to those specific churches. He's talking about all churches, even the churches that would ever come to exist in the future. The second thing John sees is he sees one moving through the lampstands, quote, one like a son of man. By the way, that phrase just happens to be the favorite way in which Jesus referred to himself, the son of man. Well, we believe that where Jesus got that, and John as well, is from a description that takes place in Daniel chapter 9 in the Old Testament. There we find that the prophet sees this royal figure like a son of man who has come to judge his people and their enemies. And so John is recalling that image to mind because John is seeing the same vision that Daniel saw so many years before. And what does he look like? Well, look at this description. The first thing is he's got a long robe and a golden sash. That, that shows that he was royalty because the working class were the one who wore the short robes. Secondly, we find that his eyes blazed, which meant that when you looked at him, you knew that he saw you, that he knew you. Thirdly, it says that his feet are made of bronze. It's interesting, if you go back to the vision that Daniel saw, he sees, a, he sees a vision of a huge statue that's made of all these precious metals, but the feet of that statue are made of clay. His prediction is that all those kingdoms that come after him are going to crumble, but the one like the Son of Man, he has strong feet. They're made of bronze, which means he's got a kingdom that will never pass away. Number five, four, his voice has authority like the sound of rushing waters. You really want to listen to this guy? Number five, of course, he's got this sword coming out of his mouth. 
which Paul tells us the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Which means that when Jesus spoke, he wasn't just saying words about God. He was giving God's actual words. Finally, it says that his face shone when he saw him. Last semester, we were studying the Ten Commandments. We talked about Moses going up on Mount Sinai and meeting with God face to face. And the effect of it was such that his face started to glow on the way down. But here's the deal. That was a reflected light. That was a borrowed shining From this person, like the Son of Man, the light is not reflected. It's coming from him. Okay, so what are we supposed to get from this? Well, look at what John got. (laughs) The first thing that happened to John when this vision captures his imagination is he falls down dead. That's the first one. He faints from the overwhelming sight of it. By the way, there's a great lesson in that for us, I think. Typically, when you meet Jesus the first time, it is a powerfully intimidating experience, is it not? you immediately begin to realize that this is someone that I cannot trifle with. There is no such thing as a casual relationship with this man. Knowing him is an all-or-nothing prospect, absolutely. But secondly, Jesus then comes and puts his hand on John's shoulder. And I love those two together. Because yes, though Jesus comes and overwhelms his people, he then comes alongside and brings them comfort. A couple of weeks ago, we had a guest preacher in Joe Johnson, the RUF minister down at State, who said that the number one command in the Bible, the most often repeated command in the Bible, you know what it is? Do not fear. And that's what Jesus says here in Revelation. In other words, we suddenly find that this this power, this strength that could very easily destroy me, suddenly we find out is on my side. Every Christian walks around and is like, yeah, 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 he's with me. So he gets seven attributes of this man, which is saying to us, since it comes in groups of seven, that this is the one you've been searching for. This, this, is the, this is what you've been searching for in every friendship that ever failed you. This is the relationship you've been longing for in every struggle you've had with your spouse. This is, this is the longing you've had in every pursuit that seems to come up empty every time. This is what you've been looking for in those sleepless nights. This is what you've been nursing over in your darkest fears. Deeply disturbing, yet deeply comforting. This is the vision of Jesus. Which secondly brings me to the second point, and that is that John says there's also a victory at the heart here. Now, for those of you that are really being attentive, you'll notice that I skipped one of the seven attributes. And I did that on purpose. Look at verse 14. It says there that Jesus had white hair. Now, what is all that about? Well, In the Bible, you may be glad to know that gray hair actually has a positive association. In other words, gray hair has to do with a a long life, with wisdom, and and a life well lived. Proverbs 16.31 says, gray hair is a crown of glory. John is saying that Jesus is to be likened to that very respectable person who just seems like they've seen everything. And they've got things to say. If you sat down with Jesus, you would want him to tell stories. You would look forward to the way that he would frame life with sage-like fashion. Why? Because in verse 17, he speaks. And what we find when he speaks is, is that Jesus is thoroughly credentialed as a sage-like person. Look, think about the previous point we just made. When I say from verses 12 through 16 that Jesus is both deeply disturbing and deeply comforting... Does that land with you? And if not, why not? I think one of the reasons why is because we haven't discovered or listened to the white-headed one 
What do I mean by this? Well, I was listening to John Piper a number of years ago preach a sermon on this. And he was talking about Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel is talking about this one like a son of man. But in verse 9 of that, of that chapter, he says he's talking about God the Father. And listen to what he says. Daniel says, as I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was white like wool. Okay, did you catch that? You see, Daniel is describing God the Father as being the white-headed one. So when John comes to pick up this son of man language from Daniel, he employs, this, employs the same imagery to talk about Jesus. Do you see the point? Jesus is saying, or John is saying, that Jesus and, 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 and the Ancient of Days are of the same essence. They're two persons, but of the exact same essence. It comes from everlasting age. And why is this so important? Because we live in a day and age where the process of aging is respected less and less, is it not? We're so embarrassed by getting older, aren't we? We admire people who can stay young looking. And I'll be the first to admit there's a weird thing that washes over you when you realize that you've got less days ahead of you than you have behind you. But what could result from that is, is that in our mind we, we start to feel internally awkward. And for some people they withdraw from public life in the face of it. And by the way, Christ Presbyterian Church, I know you struggle with this. Because a year and a half ago, we sent out a request for you to fill out your membership profiles for our church directory on our app. And I found that over half of our ladies that are over the age of 60 would not put your birth year on the application. <laughs> so let's be honest with ourselves. Look, here's my point. The Bible sees aging in exactly the opposite way. Leviticus 19.32, God commanded, You will rise up before the white head. And honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. Listen to what John Piper says about this. He says, one of the reasons we don't want to grow old is that we associate age with the fading of powers that make life worth living. The capacity to see and hear and think clearly and move about and have, not have pain. But all of those things do not belong to aging as aging. They belong to aging in a futile and fallen world of sin. Because once God does away with sin and the curse and establishes a new heavens and earth, aging will not have any of those negative connotations. Rather, it will only be associated with growing wisdom and insight and maturity. All the strength will still be there. All the mental powers, all the sight and the hearing and the agility. Nothing that is great about youth will be left behind in that day. There will only be added to us the powers and the beauties and the depths of age. That is what John is seeing when he describes him as the great white-headed one. He's not wavering. He's not faltering in his step. Okay, so now ask the question, how do we know this is the case? Well, look what the text says in verse 18. He says, I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. In other words, it's the fact that Jesus was dead and is alive forever. That Jesus at his resurrection defeats the problem of death. And oh, what a problem it is. N.T. Wright says that John now appears to his friends like someone who's whispering us that, hey, we found the way out of the dungeon. Come with us. 
I know you're in prison, but we've got the keys now to death and to Hades. I've got them right here. And for that reason, there's nothing more for you to worry about. But here's the deal. If you have unresolved the question of the problem of death, you have everything to worry about. If death for you this morning is an instant blip out of existence, my guess is, is you're discovering that you are having a whale of time trying to establish any meaning on this side of the grave. If my ending ends in nothingness, what makes me think anything now is significant? Or maybe others of you think to yourself, well, I know there's death on the other side, but I'm terrified of that judgment that I'm going to face. My guess is that that terror of judgment is hanging out there. Then honestly, you realize that even, even your joyful moments get spoiled by the thought of death. But here's the deal. If you are united to Christ, to this glorious re- risen Jesus, death is a conquered foe. Death is something that's been removed. We, we, have, we have followed him out of the dungeon of fear and death that this pandemic has laid on us. B.J. Miller is a palliative care doctor who wrote in December about the ways in which the the pandemic has gotten us thinking about death and our relationship with it. It's a fascinating read, mostly because I've always wondered exactly what someone who doesn't have the resurrection in their imagination does with the idea of death. Miller's article, I think, is beautiful, but it's woefully incomplete in my opinion. Listen to what he says. He says, beyond the fear and isolation, maybe this is what the pandemic holds for us. The understanding that living in the face of death can set off a cascade of of realization and appreciation. Death is the force that shows you what you love and urges you to revel in that love while the clock ticks. Reveling in love is one sure way to see you through and beyond yourself to the wider world where immortality lives. A pretty brilliant system, really, showing you who you are, limited, And all that you are a part of, vast. As a connecting force, love makes a person more resistant to obliteration. Did you catch that? He's saying that the pandemic has brought death so close to us. But it's always been close, hasn't it? We've had our belly full here at our church in the last couple of months. It's always been close. And I simply beg to differ with Mr. Miller. Love has no power to transform if it's not forever. In other words, it's only eternal love that changes us. It's only love outside of time that ensures that what I know to be life will keep on going. But as long as the specter of death hangs over us, it will always issue forth in slavery. And because it's slavery, it very well may be the impetus for most of the sin that exits my life as well. Hebrews 2.14 puts it this way, Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all, listen to this, who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. The writer of the book of Hebrews assumes that the average person is living in a walking slavery because what looms out there in the back of everyone's conscience is everyone's eventual death. And yet Jesus is the white-haired one. Jesus comes in and says, Behold, I have the keys of death and Hades. I rose again, 
And what Easter means is, is I am able to come down with my spirit and remove from you the specter that walks around with us all that death is the great spoiler of life. And once having been removed, he releases us into the good life. The only version of the good life. And I hope you'll recognize that there is an invitation in that for all those in Christ to realize that that's what Easter is about. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, we do long for you to come and make that known to us. Father, we, we don't, death is so antiseptic for us. It's something that happens at a hospital or, or, or a care center. We go to funerals and we walk around and we're nervous around them because we know how awkward and awful is that truth. But Lord Jesus, it's Easter. <laughs> And you gave us this glorious, beautiful day in order to preach to us this morning that indeed you have conquered death, that all the keys are in your hands. And so we ask, Lord, that you would be so gracious to us as to make that known to us this morning. Father, it comes hard inside of our souls and inside of our hearts, but we pray that you would give it to us. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.